hours to go before the general election, but win, lose or draw, there's still a lot of things on the EMS to-do list. I'm Rob Lawrence, and this is EMS One Stop. Welcome to One Stop Extra. On today's podcast, I will deliver a full narration of my article that originally appeared online at ems1.com or many other social media platforms. Additionally, I will welcome a special guest to have a quick chat on the subject and see if we can pull out any takeaways. Before I do today's read, I would like to introduce and welcome Chief Bruce Evans. Uh, Chief Evans is the fire chief at the Upper Pine River Fire Protection District. But most importantly, Chief Evans is the president-elect of NAEMT, so I'm delighted to say on this show, I have somebody that we know will be president next year. So that's really cool. Uh, Also, I'm going to mention that uh, Bruce is also uh, appointed to the National Academies of Medicine and sits on their preparedness committee, and hopefully that knowledge will come up a little bit later. Bruce, welcome and thank you for joining me this afternoon. Well, thanks, Rob, for having me. I've invited you on because, as I said, I know you're going to be president. So congratulations on becoming president next year. But you, of course, you've you've been president-elect for a while. So you've had the chance to, you know, shadow Matt to be a part and parcel of the NAMT, you know, management, shall we say. But, you know, how are you, how are you preparing? What are you doing now in order to get ready to take on the top job? Well, I think, um, you know, one of the things that is the responsibility of the president um, and the president-elect is to kind of outline uh, what your goals and objectives are going to be for the, you know, the two-year term. Um, So at NAMT, we do two years as the president-elect, and then we do two years as the president, and then two years as the media past president. And, you know, I have about five goals that I kind of articulate in the NAMT national meeting that I want to get done in my uh, tenure. And, um, you know, that preparing for that kind of requires you to line up the right folks in the right committees, um, assign the liaisons to the different agencies that NAMT routinely interfaces with, and then, um, you know, articulate to the board and make sure that the board's on, um, uh, on board with the, uh, your vision. And, you know, that's part of the leadership is to, to get uh, people to follow what, you, uh, what you've laid out for them. And, I think I've laid out a fairly aggressive schedule for the next two years. Uh, you know, I think Matt, um, in in his expertise, is really you know phenomenally knowledgeable about billing. Um, I'm going to really focus on leadership and mentoring, and uh, trying to get the next generation prepared to kind of take over these spots. That's really exciting, actually, and uh, and we've had this discussion already, but I hope. As your time goes on, you will come back and certainly join me to comment. Uh, we'll also line you up to talk to uh, Messrs. Sebolero and Grayson as well on their show. Obviously, having the leader talking about leadership is really cool, and I certainly look forward to that. So thank you for those opening comments, but uh, let's just take a minute. I hope you're sitting comfortably, Bruce, and I'm going to listen to this week's article narration in full. Challenges for the road ahead, no matter the state of pandemic and politics. 
The final weekend of political TV ads is upon us, possibly. As we all know, next week's election day doesn't mark the beginning of presidential, senate, gubernatorial, sheriff and locally elected officials, too numerous to mention polling, but the end. Voting closes, counting starts, and the need for public safety vigilance, rapid reaction and response continues. Tensions are high and the potential for civil disorder exists. All in the week where we climb the third peak of the COVID-19 surge. In fact, we could be facing a violence and virus super spreader week ahead. As Winston Churchill once famously said, this isn't the beginning of the end, it's the end of the beginning. And a lot will be asked of us operationally over the next week, particularly if any of the variables and factors take a turn for the worse. High on the to-do list this week has inevitably been those preparations usually employed when the long-range radar indicates a storm is coming and essential actions need to occur. By now, I'm sure emergency planners and emergency operation centres, if they ever closed, have issued their incident action plans in the event of any disturbances on, around or after the election. A further consideration leading up to election day is the weather. The northern states are now seeing cool to freezing weather and snow on the ground. This places citizens attending rallies or protests at increased risk of cold weather injuries or hypothermia. Vaccine or not, the pandemic and its consequences will continue into 2021. Once out of phase three trials, the logistic effort to distribute, administer a COVID-19 vaccine will take a long time to roll out. Any political claim that we are home and dry should be treated with a grain of salt for the next year at least. This places us all on the footing that we will still be in this continuous operation until this time next year. As Ray Barashansky noted, this is a marathon of sprints. Leadership and the continued energy of leaders is still required. A simple check of the Nemsis TAC public-facing charts demonstrates that our overall call volume continues to plummet. As we all know, despite our best efforts to gain payment for our pandemic levels of treatment in place, income must surely be following the downward trajectory. Federal bailouts have come our way, but this week's announcement that no relief, this side of the election, represents a further fiscal blow. States and cities are also experiencing the hit and are issuing warnings of massive budget deficits. As line items are cut and reduced, the public sector and public safety and their bottom lines inevitably come into sharp focus. We're already seeing signs of reduction, furlough and threatened layoff. No matter the political colour of the new administration, the lack of available income will inevitably impact the amount of available tax-based funded responses. Politics or not, recruitment and retention have come into sharp focus as money and workforce availability have become too tight to mention. NAMT President Matt Zavadsky, Chief Strategic Integration Officer at MedStar Mobile Health Car in Fort Worth, Texas, reminds us that perhaps we don't have a paramedic shortage, but a maldistribution of the workforce. This is borne out to a degree as we see stories in the trade news of the inability to recruit in one area despite the large sign-on bonuses, contrasted against other areas where hiring freezes are being enacted. Perhaps we are seeing the beginning of market forces at work where a buyer's market is evolving and the employee will determine the hourly rate they will work for versus accepting the standard offer from the employer. This is a challenging proposition given the market is funded by reimbursement and those with funds, government and insurance companies, and they set low rates and contest payments at every turn. I didn't intend to be a Donald Downer or even a Joe Joyful, but to tell it as it currently is. 
The challenges may seem insurmountable, but we're all in this together, globally. The items covered in this article are staples that we will have to continue to contend with no matter the results of the election. To some degree, some of those issues have always been in place, no matter the state of pandemic and politics. Next week, I will examine the state of play, the balance of politics, and identify the legislative road ahead. It's not just a president on the slate, but many officials who will inevitably have the power to make our future days better or worse by responding to those four little yet important words. All those in favour. So there you have it. That was uh, my take on things. And as always, I'd love to hear what you think in the comments section at the main column at ems1.com. But I've got uh, Chief Bruce Evans, President-elect NAMT, with me. Uh, the topic this week was really not about predicting the future under a new president, but kind of discussing those things that aren't going to change no matter who's in charge, win, lose or draw. And so I'm going to throw a few a few things at you and, and see what you think. Clearly, COVID has caused the tax base to shrink. Uh, I use that lovely phrase, public sector purses are shrinking. Um, money is about to become too tight to mention. Uh, so how should EMS chiefs and fire chiefs be preparing to literally survive the next 12 to 18 months, no matter who's in charge? Well, I think uh, this is going to be critical, I think, in the next two years, Rob. And, you know, one of the things that nationally we're seeing is that the call volume is down by about 30 percent. Um, and that that number just came off the NEMSIS database uh, just last week. And um, I can tell you here at my agency, we're probably down about 12 to 15 percent. Um, but certainly a 30 percent um, decline in people's ambulance revenue uh, can be, you know, obviously put some financial hardships onto some agencies. So I, I think the other thing that folks don't really realize, and, and this is kind of finance 101 for administrators and EMS leaders, where does your money come from? You know, very, uh, you know, unless you're a private ambulance industry um, or private ambulance based, you know, that's a fee for service and the unit hour cost is a little bit less. But certainly if you're a government agency, you're uh, county based or um, you're fire based, you know, all of your money comes from essentially property tax. Occasionally there's some places that do sales tax or there's a public safety tax. But when you start getting down to property tax, which funds a lot of, uh, you know, public uh, emergency service providers, the big portion of that where you get a bigger piece of the puzzle is from commercial property tax. And that's the one thing that I don't think people understand is that COVID is definitely changing the way that we do business in America. For example, um, you know, you might have been getting tax money from a office complex that uh, was also charging rent to somebody that has now transitioned all those workers to be working from home. Um, and that might be additional money that was being spent on gasoline and fuel for the um, highway tax that a car was filling up at the gas pump. And all of those revenues are gonna decline, especially that chunk of commercial real estate. You know, if I, if I run a call center, for example, and I have a hundred employees in there, and I know that I can now transition those call, those call center employees to work from home, and I don't have to pay common area maintenance fee, I don't have to pay utilities, you know, maybe I up their wages a little bit so that they can pay their own internet bill or get a higher speed internet. 
then they can work from home. That's commercial uh, property assessment that is no longer going to be coming in to public safety coffers, which is huge. And, and I think that, again, understanding where all of your money comes from, you know, again, whether it's fee for service or it's property tax is absolutely critical for people to start taking some assessments on. Um, you know, the other thing is, is here, you know, in my agency, we're, we're branching out doing a lot of other things and trying to find other revenue sources. So, um, like I would tell you that, um, you know, we're about a $4.2 million operation. And this year, it uh, looks like we're going to probably bill out almost a million dollars in wildland fire response. And, um, you know, again, that's uh, almost a fourth of our budget. So um, we have to be a little creative on how to do that. And then certainly we're jumping into ET3 um, and looking at uh, treating on transport revenues. So there's, there's a lot of things to unpack there. And uh, as you said, you're going to be focusing on leadership in your new term. And, uh, you know, leaders are going to have to step up to the plates. I, I've been, some some would say, droning on for the last decade that EMS is a business, like it or not, and people have gone, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But all of a sudden, it is absolutely crucial because that income is waning, as you have so elegantly explained there. Uh, but And uh, it's interesting to talk about the diversification of business lines because over here in California, we've recently done a, a survey around the houses, as it were, and, you know, what are, what are you doing extra? And it's fascinating that in the last few months we've done uh, ED augmentation, we've done nursing home augmentation, we've evacuated people from cruise ships, we've relocated entire uh, facilities because of COVID. Um, even one organisation in the Bay Area has a testing service to test cadavers for COVID. So all these things are, are, are keeping us busy, but I suspect not enough to keep the bottom line somewhat solvent. And so I think this next few months is going to be absolutely key for everybody balancing the books because, you know, if, in a normal business, if you can't afford something, then you close. But we're talking about life-saving. We're talking about fire protection. Um, I just think it's a, it's a major challenge and something, as I say, win, lose, or draw. This one ain't going away, right? Right. And I think, um, you know, COVID's going to be around for a while. And, you know, there's a lot of predictions like, uh, um, you know, will COVID be kind of like the flu? You know, we're going to have... Yeah. Uh, we're going to have increases with it in the flu season or maybe a seasonal opportunity. But, you know, one of the things, uh, Rob, that, you know, I think, you know, that I'm on, on the National Academy of Sciences and uh, uh, the preparedness committee there. And, you know, while um, COVID's here and we're dealing with it and there's a lot of plans in place, despite, you know, what other people are saying, and there's forward momentum on a lot of issues going on with COVID. But, you know, the next question that comes up is, what about the next outbreak, the next pandemic? Uh, and are we prepared to take another onslaught? I mean, you know, uh, while COVID has been highly contagious and it certainly has taken a lot of lives, um, this could have been one step worse. It could have been, let's just say it was uh, COVID and um, hemorrhagic fever together in one virus and what that would have looked like. Um, and, and these things can still be out there and, and they can be emerging, certainly as we, we see, you know, populations increase and, you know, whether Mother Nature decides to hand us another one of these in the future, we really have to be ready for that. And again, that's going to stress budgets. Um, there, it, you know, it, it's one of those things where you have to ask, what is coming next? 
And, you know, so many people are so fatigued at dealing with COVID now, they can't even really fathom to say, okay, well, what's next? Um, and, and I think we do, we need to be looking for that in the future. And we need to be teaching leaders that, um, you know, there, there are going to be some times where you're going to be, uh, you know, it's going to be, uh, you know, fourth and goal and you're on the one yard line um, and you've got to move the ball over the, over the finish line. And, uh, and there's a lot of people right now that are fatigued to do that. And, you know, I think the other thing is we're probably going to be losing a whole generation of leadership um, that is experienced and knows how to deal with this when it's all over and done with. That was a fantastic answer. And uh, we have a lot of Australian and UK listeners, by the way. So let me just translate that we are uh, scrumming down with five yards to go before the try line. So I'll just explain that <laughs> to uh, <laughs> to others that are listening in Australia and the UK. Uh, I don't even remember this, but a few years ago, I actually subbed for you and, and, and attended the session at uh, up in up in DC. And I thought it was absolutely fascinating and cool to be in that rarefied air and also to sit next to Barashansky and look at the color of his socks for that day. But even so, it was uh, it was a great experience. But that those uh, the, the institutes have also were also considering the orders of vaccination and who had priority. And so I'm guessing you played a part in, in that piece and, and, and obviously advocating to make sure that we were at the top of the list or somewhere near the top of the list. Right. And, uh, you know, so first responders and medical people and most of the plans, um, because those did go out to the state, um, you know, so the states do have the opportunity to, to um, edit them and, and change the priorities around a little bit. From, but from a national level, first responders, healthcare workers, and then people at risk. And then, you know, there, there's definitely been a, um, a movement to make sure that there's vaccine that will be equally distributed to um, at-risk neighborhoods or people of color, and some of the areas where the healthcare system may not be penetrating as deep into the neighborhoods as it should be. Um, now, I, I would tell you that there's a fantastic opportunity here for EMS. You know, Rob, as we talked about, um, you know, what what we're going to do about trying to generate money, or you know, what new opportunities we have. So right now, you know, the federal government's looking at this massive workforce increase in the public health system. And then, you know, once COVID passes, what do we do after that? You know, what do we do with all these extra people that you've hired? And again, you know, most of these public health agencies are, you know, government funded. So can they sustain their budgets just like fire departments and EMS agencies? And, you know, we at NAMT have been advocating through our uh, lobbyists to say, we have a workforce that now um, has a 30% decrease in their workload that is standing by, that knows how to give subcutaneous shots. They know how to um, wear PPE. They know how to treat an allergic reaction if it happens. Why don't you give some extra money or instead of hiring all these new positions that really frankly aren't out there um, to be hired, and give that money to EMS agencies and let them do the vaccinations, let them do the, the drive-through clinics. I, I can tell you the last um, month here at Upper Pine, Rob, and, and again, we're a super rural agency. We only have about 12,500 people in 272 square miles. And we did two drive-through COVID testing clinics um, where our firefighters came, they put donned all the gear, they did the nasal swabs. We had one person, from the local health department kind of supervising everything, make sure we were doing it right. 
Uh, the first time we tested 60 people, the next time we tested 40 people. Um, and we did that for our community. And that's probably the other giant piece of the funding puzzle is, you know, people are willing to give you a little bit more money if they see that there's value in your service. Um, and certainly we were supplementing the local health department here that did not have the staff to service this community over here um, in a timely fashion. And, you know, to the people in our fire district, um, they know that our firefighters will basically do anything to solve people's problems. And um, in this particular case, we solved the problem of making sure we had additional people to do COVID sampling. Now, a little bit of that was a run up so that we can also do the vaccine. Um, as we're told, we'll probably have about 100 doses of vaccine on the first round. Um, and we're prepared to help the health department make that happen. That's great. As, as I keep saying, we are the Marine Corps of the Public Health Navy and, uh, you know, going to strike forth in expeditionary operations to do all this stuff. You mentioned the vaccine. One of the other controversies, of course, is we saw an EMS-1 survey where only half the paramedics said they would take a vaccine in the first place. Um, function of leadership, you're about to be the, you know, the president and leader of most of our nation's EMTs by association. What have you got to say to that? So I would tell you, I, you know, I respect the anti-vaxxer philosophy. I get it. Um, but however, I think that um, I would just tell you a little bit about the vaccine program we have here at Upper Pine. So early on in the COVID outbreak, I supplied the Prevnar pneumonia vaccine to all of our employees that were over the age of 45. So I guess you can say that we took a, we stepped out of the box a little bit to vaccinate people. Now, obviously, if you're an EMS worker, you've been vaccinated for hepatitis B and uh, maybe hepatitis A, and you've had hopefully your flu shot or you've had to sign the declination on the flu shot. But we took the extra mile and we bought uh, Prevnar and the Pneumovax vaccine for all of our employees that, like I said, were over the age of 45. So you know, here's the, you know, an unbelievable story about that is that, again, as a vaccination, it's good for nine or 12 types of uh, bacterial pneumonia. How many times are you in the back of the ambulance with a patient that may be COVID that also has a co-infection? So interestingly enough, some of the statistics are showing that the ones that are admitted in the ICUs are actually have a co-infection. So they have bacterial pneumonia and COVID where they have COVID and uh, RSV. So there, it's very interesting um, to see that now. And again, we have a proven vaccine that, that prevents, you know, that gives you that extra piece from getting exposed to a bacterial pneumonia in the back of an ambulance where you're essentially in a truck that has very poor airflow. Um, and even if you have an N95 mask on, you know, you're like I said, you're in a small eight by eight box where there might be a patient that, you know, is aerosolizing uh, those bacterial virus. And I think it needs to be there. So, so I'm happy to tell people that we're leading from the front by offering those vaccines to our people and that we're strongly encouraging our folks to get it. But I know that there are, there are people out there that have religious views and, um, and they may have a, a personal experience where things have gone bad with a vaccine. I would tell you that my stepfather, who was an EMT um, in, uh, in central Iowa during the 80s, um, got the swine flu vaccine. And he was an Air Force medic in the Air National Guard in Des Moines. And he came down with Guillain-Barre. Um, and he had a near-death experience and he was innovated. 
Um, and unfortunately, he survived it. But there are family members that and the uh, EMS providers that have seen Guillain-Barre or they've seen an allergic reaction or polymyitis. And those folks, um, you know, their, their fears are, are their experiences and you have to respect that. But um, I think that, you know, like I said, I, it's important to get out and lead from the front. We're offering those vaccines to our folks. We're gonna try to put our folks on the front line with it. And then the other thing that's out there, I think that you really have to try to get people convinced to understand is that how much does it cost to be in the hospital with, uh, with the disease? And, you know, we really haven't seen anything yet about what an ICU stay with COVID looks like. What's the dollar value of that? And a lot of times when you present something to somebody and you let them weigh the risk of, is this going to bankrupt your family? Or, um, you know, if you're on a high deductible health plan, are you good with $7,000 coming out of your pocket to pay for your hospital expenses for COVID? Um, especially if you acquire it in a non-workers comp situation, or do you want to take this free vaccine that your agency is offering you um, that, you know, scientifically, this thing is going to be just due to politics. These vaccines are going to be so scrutinized because both sides are claiming, um, you know, political issues with it. I can't imagine that anything that's going on, even if you look at some of the current deaths that have happened in the trials, they have not been really related to the vaccine that's for COVID. Matter of fact, the one was a different live virus that they were experimenting with that they thought might have some uh, crossover and protection. Um, you know, so again, it, it wasn't the typical um, non-attenuated or non-live virus that you would see in most vaccines. So I think it's really important that we educate all our workforce on what's a live virus, what's not a live virus, um, what has thimerosal in it? What has other preservatives in it? And, and then, you know, what's this going to look like if you get hospitalized? Again, can you afford $7,000 out of your pocket to cover your, your deductible if you or your family winds up in the hospital on this? And, you know, most EMS providers can't afford that additional cost. So it's all going to come down to e uh, economics, whether it's uh, fire chief economics or indeed personal economics. Uh, that's about all the time we have, Bruce. But if people want to follow you or get hold of you, how can they do that? Um, so I'm at uh, Hawkeye EMS. Um, again, I'm from Iowa originally, so it's pretty easy to remember that. And, um, <laughs> at, and I'm old school. I'm at Hawkeye EMS at AOL.com. Well, we'll look out for that. So also, thank you for that. Please follow me on Twitter at UKRobL or over on LinkedIn. If you're listening on the SoundCloud, hang on for another second because we're waiting for another great episode of Inside EMS with Chris and Kelly. That's all for now. My guest has been Bruce Evans. I've been Rob Lawrence. And until next time, bye for now.